0: Blockchain Advisor is the go-to podcast that bridges the gap between traditional investing and digital assets. The podcast covers a wide range of topics including stocks, bonds, and commodities, the cryptocurrencies listed on Coinbase, and the Grayscale Investment Trusts. We're going to help you build an elegant portfolio of digital assets from the perspective of an options market maker and registered investment advisor. My name is Bill Uliveri, and I'm the Blockchain Advisor. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Blockchain Advisor. Today, we have a super exciting, really stoked to have this conversation with a friend of mine, Dan William, uh, who has really been involved in the cybersecurity space and risk management for businesses. Uh, Dan, as usual, I'd just like to hop right in, get right into the conversation. Tell us a little bit about your background. Thank you for being here with me. And let's talk about cybersecurity and such.
1: Great. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, briefly, my background, Uh, I am a retired FBI special agent. I served in the FBI for 23 years and retired in August of 2020. During my career in the Bureau, I was focused primarily on counterterrorism matters, so not cybersecurity. I sort of fell into this world after retirement, joined a consulting firm, and in the midst of that, trying to determine where my best fit was. Uh, opportunities came up in cybersecurity, and now I deal in the or I work in the cybersecurity practice at the consultancy. So, Dan, where did where did
0: you grow up? What were your hobbies as a kid? Did you were you like a you know James Bond 007? You wanted to kind of get into law enforcement and this you know FBI stuff, or were you just wanted to be a baseball player and you just kind yeah. of fell into the FBI? Like, how does it work?
1: Yeah, you know, I I guess like I fell into this current, my current role and I sort of fell into the Bureau as well. Gradu- graduated with an accounting degree, earned my CPA license, worked for a audit firm and had a good group of friends. And one of my friends was interested in the Bureau and that sort of piqued my curiosity to learn more about the FBI and, and what I could do um, within the organization. So back in 1997, when I applied, eons ago Mm it was it was manual so i literally um on my lunch break or during lunch walked over to the federal building that was next door to where my office building was knocked on the fbi's door literally (laughs) and asked how do i apply for a position as a special agent and the guy at the door was very nice said hold on a second introduced me to another person handed me some paperwork and the rest is history and so, so how long
0: I, did how long did it take from the time you knocked on the door to the time you had, I'm sure there was background checks, fingerprints, yeah. there was, uh, you know, resumes, IQ tests, like how long from start to finish before they handed you a badge and a gun and do people yeah. in forensic accounting even get a gun?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did carry a weapon. Um, it, the process took about a year. Um, there is obviously an extensive background check. Um, there is a... Um, an an aptitude test, a background test, references, a polygraph, um, an interview, a panel interview with three agents who ask a series of questions. And these questions aren't, you know, you have a a hostage, you know, barricaded in a room, what do you do? Mm -hmm. What the Bureau is seeking is leadership. And so their questions are just like any other interview where they're asking you, how do you deal with adversity, complex issues? How do you prioritize? How do you lead? And so those are the questions that were asked. And then all the quote unquote law enforcement sort of stuff was taught at Quantico and after that. But ultimately the Bureau wants leaders who have a curiosity and intention to detail and get to truth because that's what the FBI is. We worked long, or I should say, I, I formerly worked, you know, mm-hmm. long investigations that had lots of evidence, lots of process and that one percent or maybe half of one percent was really what you might see in the movies and even then not even close to that you know cinematic you know sure extravaganza you know the arrest you know and, and post arrest interviews and, and that sort of thing but you know the i don't think any movies would sell if they really saw what the bureau did which was interviews evidence process you know that sort of thing using when available sources and electronic methods. All those sorts of things require court orders and approvals and they move deliberately because at the the end of the day, we wanna put the the worst people in jail Mm -hmm. for the right reasons. And so we don't do anything quickly or hastily. It was, and we had finite resources. Is this person bad, you know, harming others, harming, the country in some way? And are we going to then use valuable resources to stop them? And again, we always wanted to get it right. Mm -hmm. There's always a sort of notion or, or I think a bit of cynicism that when the Bureau goes to trial, they never lose. And it's because we're selective, we have finite resources and we go after the toughest cases, but we have the most evidence. And these cases, you know, take years. So these aren't, three minute investigations. These are long drawn out cases with solid evidence because if we're going to invest those resources, we want to come out, you know, with a good result. Is there a lot of pressure
0: for an employee of the FBI to stick to stay there? Because maybe your input in your part is so important in the investigation and the investigation takes so long, like you can't quit in the middle of this Dan. You can't leave and you know we're we're 80% going, we're almost there to trial. Like you got to stick it up for another year or two. Like, do you think that's
1: goes on? Um, so I supervised a squad for many years and there was turnover in the way of agents getting promoted or an opportunity to do something else in the organization. Mm-hmm. And it was always next man up. So these cases once opened could be opened by two or three other, you know, or have, two or three other previous investigators or agents assigned to the case. Mm-hmm. But as long as the case was opened, it was worked by, you know, an agent. And mm-hmm. so lots of times because these cases are, you know, I was in the counterterrorism space for many, many years, 24, 36 month cases, and you're going to have natural turnover. Right. Um, not people leaving the bureau, but moving on to other opportunities. And so that's why leadership going back to the interview process, and, you know, attention to detail organization was so valued by the bureau because there is constant movement. Sure. And if you lose sight of the case objectives, then the case could stall. You know, things can happen. So right. it wasn't one man, one case. It was many agents, many cases, got it. and agents were interchangeable to make sure the cases got accomplished.
0: Cool. And so, tell Dan, tell us a little bit about what you're doing today. And you know what is you know get what gets you up in the morning?
1: Yeah. So, uh, like I said, I, I retired August of 2020. Uh, I had an excellent career in the bureau, uh, and what I saw or what I was experiencing in the bureau was um, agents who were coming up through the ranks were honestly far more talented than me. They had broader skills. They were more emotionally mature. They could multitask. They were technically more savvy, and you know I was—I um, consider myself young, but in the bureau I was one of the senior, older guys, and it was time for me to open up a space for others to take over what I started or what I continued on as a supervisor of a counterterrorism squad to let others get into that space and grow and keep the organization vibrant. And so I had a 23-year career at that point,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I started just looking around my background. You know, I was a CPA. I got my MBA from the university of Chicago. And so, you know, I had a business accounting sort of bend in my education. And so I was looking to maybe, you know, get back into that space. This is in the midst of, of COVID mm-hmm. um, actually. Um, yeah. In the midst of COVID's August of 2020. So I really thought my chances of of finding something would be, you know, slim to none and slim just left the room, but, you know, I kicked kick the tires on things and um, through, you know, the nice thing about, career in the bureau was you have a nice network of you know former attorneys former you know current and former and current and former agents who have you know already blazed that path Mm -hmm. and so you, you 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 go to your network and ask what's out there long story short i got hired at a consulting firm here in chicago to work in their forensic services practice where originally the thought was i along with you know others you know, it's a well-established practice. I I come in as a, a new person learning their approach was to assist and lead, you know, white-collar crime investigations on the civil side, mm-hmm. and some some of these, from what I I knew from the consulting firm, you know, turned criminal, and that's when you would bring law enforcement or turn law enforcement turn over to law enforcement. But ultimately, it would be you know theft uh, of all kinds um, and also disputes you know, between companies or people. And we were, you know, tasked through law firms or directly with clients to come up with what's the the damage and who's responsible for it. Mm -hmm. And so it was definitely a um, document intensive, business focused approach to forensics. And I truly enjoy it. Uh, In the midst of that, it was recommended to me that um, I just branch out and the consultancy is, has a very diverse set of practices. And so it was recommended. And, and the nice thing about um, the consultancy is they have coaches and, and mentors. Mm-hmm. And it was really nice with that transition to um, speak to some of these folks and, and someone recommended, why don't you just reach out to others? I reached out to um, the cyber practice leader and they're busy 24 seven. And said, of course, we can use your help. And now I'm working in, in cyber. And so um what gets me up in the morning, as you mentioned, is just you know the idea that we're still helping people. So in the Bureau, it was always about, you know, helping victims, um, righting wrongs when we could. And in this field, it's the same thing where companies become victims of of hacker attacks and we help them get back you know, online and and restore and get back to their normal. And so I enjoy that Mm -hmm. sort of helping others uh, in the midst of all this.
0: Cool. All right. so if we could, then let's like, there's so much news about cyber attacking, you know, both on our infrastructure side, and then you can't even go a day probably without finding an article of some company getting uh, cyber hacked. Right. And, And I'm sure that that takes different different, uh, different. it looks differently at different times with different companies. But let's just say I'm a small guy, right? I mean, I'm yep. a one or two man show. I get an email that looks legit. I click on it and my computer's frozen. Or there's, there's a, it wants me to pay a fee, you know, to unrelease, you know, to release my encrypted files. Like, yep. can we, can we just go like quickly, like from A to Z, like I'm a small business owner. What happens if I get attacked? What does that look like? <clears throat> what's the most common attack and where do I go?
1: Yep, yeah, so um, that would be um, a ransomware matter. So there's many different cyber attacks and what we focus on is a client who's been compromised and their goal is to get back to restore previously to the ransom attack. Mm-hmm. And so those are a for-profit, uh, those are our groups that are seeking profit. It's extortion. It's criminal behavior, um, first and foremost. And so, basically, you know, you mentioned you know a phishing email. That's one of many ways these groups. And again, I'm not technical, mm-hmm. um, but there's a whole group of folks within the practice that can get into networks and figure out, you know, through their forensics review of what happened. But generally speaking, you know phishing is a pretty prominent method of how these groups get a toehold into your network. But there's also other vulnerabilities that networks have. And I won't address all of them and address mm-hmm. all of them, and nor do I know exactly how they exploit those vulnerabilities, but you know, open ports, um, patches that weren't um, you know, software patches that were needed, that aren't updated, vulnerabilities within your network, beyond just the clicking on the phishing email are ways that these groups can get in. And taking a step away from your business, the dark web, which is, I will just say, um, things you don't find through a Google search, you need a separate browser. But again, it's a robust internet of legitimate things. But within that there are illegitimate or illegal practices. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole market out there where groups and in individual exchange vulnerabilities that they come across buy and sell these vulnerabilities with the whole point of using it to then infiltrate a network, hijack it. And typically what they'll do is encrypt the data
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then post a note Um, when you flip on your machine the following morning and the note is literally a ransom note, we have encrypted your network. Um, and then they'll provide instructions on how to communicate with them, go to this web address or use this email address Mm -hmm. to determine how you get your systems back online. And so from a small business owner, again, it's from small to large, um, all companies that have a network and are connected you know, to the wider internet or wider world, do run the risk of having their system seized and locked up through these uh, methods. And so quite honestly, you know, without your knowledge, someone's in your network and they'll typically do two things. They will encrypt your files. And what that means is they'll take the plain English of your documents, run a program and basically turn it into a bunch of numbers and characters that are unreadable. Got it. And there is an encryption and decryption process and you need to pay for that decryption key to turn things back into plain English. But go ahead. Sorry. I
0: mean, it's hard enough running being a business owner as it is. Now you've got these people like who knows where they're at. It could be, you know, Eastern Europe, Africa, like who knows, but, so my, I guess I'm just going to ask random questions that I thought of before, you know, preparing for this. And it is if I'm already using an encryption program on my computer, say I'm using Microsoft BitLocker. It's just it just comes with Windows 10 or 11, and I have it enabled and I've I've encrypted my entire hard drive. If I click on an email that has then planted the seed and done what you just said, does the bad actor get my encrypted files? that they can't understand i mean doesn't that or can or is how i'm using and seeing my computer what i'm not sure exactly how to ask this question but i want to know am i safe if i've already used bitlocker on my computer because all they're getting is files already encrypted and they can't use it
1: um again i'm not i'm not technical so i don't really know the answer to that but let me finish the process here okay sorry Mm -hmm. um and so um these and again if you're You know, and if you're savvy and and up to speed on some of these things like you've mentioned, and you take preventative measures, you could have a vulnerability and a a, a hacking group gets into your network and they'll poke around Mm -hmm. and say, okay, there's nothing of value here or like you have encrypted files. There's really nothing we'll do here. We'll move on.
0: Right. Um, Oh my gosh.
1: But The hacking group will do two things and and they evolve over time. So Mm -hmm. initially it was encrypting data. And then you would negotiate for payment for the decryption key to get your files, you know, decrypted. Right. But you know, there is a just as robust cybersecurity world as there is a hacking world and they learn from each other. And so security folks said, okay, we need solid backups and able to rebuild and reconstitute our networks should we get encrypted. And that will force, um, or excuse me, that will not force, but that'll eliminate the need to make any ransom payment. Mm -hmm. And so most people, not always, most groups or companies have backups. But one of the things that we've seen um, in certain instances is that the backups fail. The backup is from a year ago. Yeah. So you still have to be diligent in your backing up to rebuild. So we see, and it's a good thing, most companies can rebuild. There aren't, are instances where they can't for whatever reason, and that's a whole you know other set of, that's for another conversation. But these hacking groups got smart because they were running into these situations where they encrypt And the company says, we rebuilt our network, see you later, we're not paying you Mm -hmm. a penny. So now when they penetrate the network, they do two things, they still encrypt, but they exfiltrate valuable data. Okay. So they will literally harvest things, you know, PII, person identifiable information, um, things that they can um, sell in the secondary market Mm -hmm. and things that a business was entrusted in holding now has left their environment. Right. And so these hacking groups will now approach these ransom negotiations with two pieces of information or two pieces that they have. They've encrypted and they've exfiltrated. And so you may be able to rebuild, but companies now have the issue of dealing with we had data, sensitive data or client data in our environment that has left it. Wow. And do we now negotiate a um, payment to suppress that data?
0: Is to... there is there an elevation in the in the way the crime is tagged, like a misdemeanor to a felony? Like if you encrypt, it's a global misdemeanor, but if you exfil and publish sensitive data, that like Interpol or the World Court views that as a more severe breach, and. Um...
1: A a, a breach is a breach. Mm -hmm. And any matter that we're involved in, law enforcement is notified. And our job is to get the client back up and running. Uh The long game is for law enforcement to figure out these hacking groups. Sure. And so any breach, and if there is a loss, I think the loss is what drives the crime. So if it's a group, and there's many well-known groups, I'm not going to advertise who they are here. But there are groups that make millions of dollars. Uh, those millions of dollars are losses, cumulative losses right. paid out by companies across the world.
0: Hundreds of millions. Hundreds yeah. of millions.
1: And so if those groups or those individuals in those groups are ever identified and indicted, they would be charged with you know various, you know, hacking crimes, but also the loss, the X amount of dollars they've taken mm-hmm. would really spike up any sort of potential jail sentence that they were here if they were tried in the U S for those crimes.
0: Yeah. I read an article. I mean, it's very well organized. This ransomware as a service ransomware business. I mean, it almost sounds like it's, I don't want to say it's this, it's a opportunity zone, but that's the way it appears from these articles that there are centers set up with beautiful receptionists and coffee machines, uh, spas. And these guys are just spending 10, 12 hours a day, just looking for opportunity to attack. Global businesses,
1: yeah, and it it is an organized crime network. So this is criminal. Mm -hmm. No matter how much free coffee or how nice the office space is, it is criminal behavior. But you're right; it is an organization. So there is, you know, a manager. uh, You have actual computer hackers that write and do the penetration. Then there's customer service, which are the folks that um, you, as a as a victim, would have to negotiate with payment if you needed it. And again, that's a whole group working in concert to try to extort money out of you, a small or large business owner, just trying to get through your day, trying to serve your clients, trying to keep your employees, you know, employed Mm -hmm. and, and turn a profit. And here you have someone coming in and interrupting your business.
0: If it's as these if it's a centralized a business at as our conversation implies and the United States is taking a stand against cybersecurity as the entire world is, can't we just go in and boom, z- you know, we hit the office building, you know, it's over here on on, uh, you know, Michigan Avenue or Lake Street yeah. or somewhere. Can't we just go in with a team and like, take these guys out or is it is it more distributed and they're working yeah. remotely?
1: Yeah. So, um the, the U.S. government takes this very seriously and is expending, um, and I'm, I'm out of it, but mm-hmm. lots of resources in trying to identify and knock these groups down. But they operate in what I'll call denied areas of the world, so governments or countries that don't cooperate with the U.S. Got it. and don't accept, say, legal service or cooperation with the U.S. government. To go take these groups out, so they reside in those parts of the world, and they're protected from U.S. process. And so, um, different from what the movies show you. Right. If we were able to target or identify a group in X country, we would work with that host country, provide them the evidence, provide them the information, and that host country would then execute arrests and all those sorts of things. And if there was the ability to extradite if it was serious enough, mm-hmm. take them, remove them from that country, and try them in the U.S. But the U.S. cannot just hopscotch across the globe and grab people and bring them back to the U.S. Okay. There is so sovereignty.
0: The due even process, though, and if all you're that.
1: not, right. you know, cooperative with the U.S., we just can't go in there and snatch people as much as maybe we want to or think we can.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We simply can't.
0: Okay. And so that's where
1: these groups operate. And there is centralization, but there's also the internet. And so they use people from across the globe. You mentioned ransomware as a service, which is a secondary layer, where it's more of your freelance hackers that penetrate a system and then knock on the door of a rep, I don't wanna say reputable, but known hacking group to negotiate on their behalf or use their tools. And so there is a robust network of people that engage in this behavior. And typically, if there is a decision to make payment, it's payable in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Again, that's a pseudo anonymous cryptocurrency. They provide their wallet address, the client or the victim sends money to that wallet address and the Bitcoin's gone. Right. Now, you know there's a forever ledger behind Bitcoin, and you can trace the movement of that, say, ransom payment, but these groups use techniques, tumblers and all these other things to sort of uh, make it more difficult to trace the funds. But ultimately, you know, the U.S. government has to have some legal toehold somewhere. And more importantly, what's called attribution is if we see wallet activity and then we could attribute it to someone mm-hmm. using some other techniques. And there's companies out there that do this, you know, seek attribution based on activity or where wallet locations are. And let's say a ransom payment ends up in a let's just say U.S. based, you know, um, exchange. Then the FBI through the United States Attorney's Office, Department of Justice, could mm-hmm. issue a search warrant and seize those monies. Got it. And but again, you know, these groups keep, you know, the coin outside of the U.S., you know, arm of the length of the U.S. uh, abilities to to take these monies back.
0: Are the amount of uh, ransom that's being asked, has that declined as ransomware activity has increased or is it Still, really high numbers and an increase in attacks. Like, how is the if you were to graph the amount of money per mm, strike per attack yeah. versus like how, how is that looking?
1: Yeah. So this is a a good question, and it, it really is. And I know I'm gonna an answer for you. I'll, I'll tell you what I I've seen is that it's a case by case basis. So these groups um kick the tires once they're in your network and mm-hmm. look for things to determine. How much cash you have in the bank they look to see how wealthy you are they oh look God. to see what the data is they'll go on other websites to see what your business revenue is so they'll look for your cyber insurance policy they'll look for those things and say let's say you're a business with a million dollar in million dollar policy mm-hmm. they'll say you have a million dollars available to you that is what we want a million dollars or you know, 10 million or 50,000 based on what they perceive that you can pay and pay quickly mm-hmm. to remedy the situation. So the frequency is is continuing, but the dollar amounts, I think, cumulatively keep growing. But there isn't, a I say, a correlation that okay. the market's saturated and the price goes down. I think it's a case-by-case basis to see how wealthy the business is and what they think they can get out of that company
0: so it almost seems like the best cybersecurity policy is to look like you can't afford to pay a ransomware uh request
1: yeah well and there's there's techniques to that that i don't want to get into but Mm -hmm. you know when you do negotiate you point those things out and you educate the hacker on what they're looking at is not reality right and try to you know work their demand down to a more reasonable number. Our goal is never to pay, mm-hmm. but if the client has data outside their network that they consider valuable and sensitive, um, they have legal requirements regardless. So any exfiltrated data, legal counsel is gonna be involved and help that client determine mm-hmm. what notifications need to be made. Right. You're not, um, um, you don't get around notification even if you pay for data suppression. Right. You pay for data suppression to show your clients and others that you've taken every measure to ensure that data does not reach out or into the secondary markets where it can be sold to others. Mm
0: -hmm. And I would say, you know, today if we were to take a quick survey of I mean, if if the hackers are being more discriminating in who they attack and ask for ransom, I mean, is there still a two-to-one ratio or four-to-one ratio of people who don't pay, can't pay, versus the one person that does pay? Like, so, to say, out of 100 attacks in a day, is it 50% can't or won't? Or is, I'm just looking for, like, a statistic of some kind.
1: Yeah, and I I don't know the whole universe, Mm -hmm. but what I I see yeah it's it, i would say 50 50% you know in that range um pay and you know the other half doesn't mm-hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons and so number one they can rebuild so that takes away the need to pay for the decryption key second and again that's where our our forensic folks and they're they're wildly talented can look at the network and see um was there indications of exfiltration Mm -hmm. to say, okay, data looks like data was migrated off the network. What particularly, you have to negotiate to see what Mm -hmm. was taken. But, you know, we can see that, okay, they're claiming they took data, but there's no indications of it. Mm -hmm. And so they might say, okay, Uh, okay, no data taken, we can rebuild, we're not going to pay. Okay. and there's also a litigation concern that what the client holds is very sensitive, and um, instead of, uh, and they still might face lawsuit from clients or customers, but they can then be armed with information that they they did everything they could. Right. Once they were aware of the breach, they locked it down, patched their networks, um, hired attorneys, hired forensic folks, and even paid and even made an extortion payment, which it is mm-hmm. to suppress the data. And the interesting thing about this is that there's honor among thieves, is that in my experience, if you pay for data suppression, the data does get deleted and gets suppressed. Okay. okay. The group that did take it does delete it because should they not, and this is a active community.
0: It hurts the whole entire industry.
1: Well, yeah, and then the, the group, the the client that didn't get what they've paid for, will go out there and say, warning to others: if you come across this group, they don't honor their wow. agreements. And so, you know, again, it, it's it hurts my FBI brain at times, um, you know, to 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 think about this. But right. the a number one goal for a business is to be operational, right? and they'll do what they have to to get operational.
0: Are there, we, other than we, just plain education, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people that say that educa- education doesn't provide the type of um, I- increasing awareness. Like if, if education was all it was cracked up to be, there would be like no drugs, no teen pregnancy, no, yeah. like all this, nobody obese, right? So uh, in terms of other than education, case by case company by company. Is there anything that companies can do to stop this? I mean, like what would, what gives the most bang for the buck?
1: Yeah. So I can't answer the technical side, like how the back, back office networking and how the structuring of things help, you know, identify, detect, and disrupt these attacks. Mm -hmm. But the things I've seen obviously is frequent or whenever there's a a, a patch to a software you use, fix it, you know, be be mindful of any software updates, always do those. um, And have some sort of endpoint detection software, virus software that can, you know, knock down these threats without the need for anyone other than the program, you know, isolating those and, and removing them. So that's, you know, programming, structure, technical things that are done. But again, there's always, you know, you have people 24 seven trying to look for vulnerabilities. Sure. And I equated to your network being a castle on a hill, right? Eventually, someone's going to dig underneath it, or go over the walls, no matter how fortified you are. If someone wants in, they'll get in you know, they have probably if they're persistent enough, have the ability to get in. From the education side, you mentioned, you know, about Prior to this job, I was lackadaisical. I'd click links. Mm-hmm. All of my passwords across all of my online accounts were the same, you know, simple passwords. And now, in the space with phishing being one of the primary ways these groups get a toehold, and what that is you receive an email, appears legitimate, click on this link it'll take you where you thought you were going and there's an executable in that link that gives the hacker potential toehold into the network. And so now what I do, and again, I only do this now because I'm in this space, Mm -hmm. any emails I get, I never click on the link. I just go to the website that they're saying directly through the browser and see what it is that they're asking me of. And so, my simple advice is never click on any links never. within no. anything right. delivered to you regardless of how sure you are they're from someone because there's also a business email compromise where someone can take over a email address and it's legitimate to you but it's being used manipulated by someone else so that's you know a number 1 is any emails i get don't, don't. click on anything Okay. Um, Call the person that sent it to you. Go to the website or whatever it is differently than through the link. Secondly is rotate passwords and make passwords more complex. And there's, there's websites out there that can generate passwords for you, you know, and I think, and again, I'm not technical. I'm going by what the websites say and some of the things online, a 16 character you know, alphanumeric password mm-hmm. is a very difficult task for someone to hack or get. Two-factor Okay. I'm sorry?
0: Password one, two, three, doesn't work anymore. Yeah,
1: you know, um, and two-factor authentication is if you have that ability, always invoke that capability where a secondary password is sent to a trusted device Um, So you log in, username, password, and then it pings saying what's your, you know, secondary and something might appear on your phone Mm -hmm. and you put that code in or something. So So those things, you know, are not foolproof, but can get you a long way down the road um, in, you know, some level of security or safety.
0: Now, Dan, I know that, you know, if you're a citizen in the United States, a business owner, you just can't be sending money all over the world, especially Bitcoin. So I understand that there is a government entity um, that watches all these assets being sent from one place to another. You have to check addresses to make sure it's not, uh, you're not funding terrorism. Like, yeah. how, can you tell us a little bit about like how that is set up and how successful they've been in monitoring bad actors or maybe yeah
1: so before any before a client decides to make any payment of any amount there's some compliance checks that need need to be done that you're alluding to so under the department of treasury ofac office of foreign asset control i i think that's right don't hold Mm -hmm. me to that Um, but ofac compiles and maintains a list of bad actors like you mentioned, terrorist groups and others who the US government prohibits financial dealings with. And so we will check the information we can glean from the hacking group against that list. And the US has its list, but most countries not, I don't know the number, so I shouldn't say most, but lots of countries also have their own lists. And we will check that across all available sanctions lists to make sure that the information provided by the the hacking group isn't flagged anywhere
0: mm-hmm.
1: should it be flagged payment cannot be made even if we desire pay- to make payment really simply cannot make payment
0: so i my computer could be locked up i'm being extorted for and even i, I can't make that payment if, if they're on the the, the
1: if you're list? engaged with a reputable consultancy and, and law firm uh-huh. they will say do not make payment. You can on your own got it make it and then you run the risk of being liable you know down the road for potentially funding a bad group. Got it. And that would be your own choice. Sure. But if you're engaged with reputable counsel and consultancy, they're going to say do not pay.
0: All right. So I so it's legal for me with the help of counsel to make a payment to a An approved address, but I cannot pay it to like a sanctioned or illegal country. Or like, okay, that's illegal, right? Yeah.
1: So if if the hacking group said, and this is a a historical example, make the payment to Al Qaeda in care of Osama bin Laden. Right. That would be someone who's denied, you know, on on the sanctions list of sending money to.
0: Has there ever been an instance, maybe, where uh, OFAC or the FBI or somebody was looking through files and realized that a U.S. citizen made a ransomware payment on the down low, and actually then arrested them, right? And and and, and filed charges against this business owner, just trying yeah. to keep his doors open for another week.
1: Yeah, I'm not aware of that. I just mm-hmm. don't know the whole history. Sure. Um, the bureau, you know, and again, I, you know, I'm a retired agent. I still have. Uh, friends and colleagues in the Bureau. And again, as I said earlier, the Bureau is not looking to put criminal charges on someone just because they can. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking to eliminate the bad actors here, which are the hacking groups. Got it. Okay. And so they, the Bureau runs criminal cases. Now, if you are actively circumventing, you know, sanctions, you know, checks for you and others mm-hmm. in our habitual offender, Right. The the bureau or someone maybe come knock on your door. Sure. But with any payment that's made, um, at least through what what we do here, we file the paperwork to notify the FBI that payment has been made. Mm-hmm. And the bureau and there's and if you look, you know, do some research, um, all the I shouldn't say all because um, I don't know everything, but um, what I've read, um, it's recommended do not pay. The government stance is do not pay. But if you have to, you are obligated to notify law enforcement. Got it. So that's what we do.
0: Interesting. Is there anybody else I'm obligated to notify? I mean, I know as an investment advisor, I am obligated to let my clients know that there's been a breach of data, breach of privacy. Uh, Is there, is there any other legal obligation? Like, do I have to notify, do I have to notify the bank? that I'm getting U.S. dollars from in order to buy cryptocurrency to send as payment, you know, the ransomware payment.
1: So that's why legal counsel is brought in Mm -hmm. and they, and again, I'm not an attorney by, by trade or education. And so this is really in the legal lane, but generally speaking, if there is a breach, certain notifications are mandatory under the law Mm -hmm. and they're state by state. And so, that's where the attorneys come in. So I, I can't give you an exact answer on that, but there are certain notification requirements, even if you can rebuild and even if nothing was taken mm-hmm. there, it's an event that requires some level of notification.
0: Even if I rebuild and I don't make payment, I have to still notify. Again, state by state.
1: Yeah. And, and okay. legal counsel would be best. And, and and again, and I'm, maybe in that instance, you don't have to, but, Again, that's where the attorney's legal counsel is involved Mm -hmm. to guide you through that. Got it. In my lane, we're focused on getting things back up and running. Mm -hmm. And we work, you know, we provide legal counsel information they need, but there are conversations we're not involved in because that's attorney client privilege that talk about what you're mentioning. Like, what are my notification obligations? And we're rightfully out of those conversations because it's none of our business. Okay.
0: Okay. All right. So since this is the blockchain advisor channel, I guess my question ultimately would be like, are there any, like, how do we, first of all, how do we fix this? And secondly, are there any blockchain solutions available out there? And and what would that look like if blockchain uh, security protocols were brought in to reduce ransomware? Like, is that possible? I I haven't even really given it any thought, to be honest with you. Yeah,
1: yeah, you know, and and I don't know if I have a good answer for that. But what, what I do know, about Bitcoin and the blockchain, it's a forever ledger. Mm-hmm. And we can see, and there are tools available right now where let's say you make you know, your ransom payment to the bad actor's wallet, you can use available tools and see where it goes. Mm-hmm. The issue comes in for legal process and getting these countries who are hosting these people to honor legal process. Because over time, with these tools and there's smart people in the space, if you can get attribution, so let's say you and I, I'm the bad actor and you're the victim client. So Bill, you send me your payment, and I'm in some denied part of the world. But through some other things I'm doing, there's attribution where mm-hmm. the the software that's tracking the payment along with other information intelligence says, we believe this to be, this person's wall and there's strong evidence to indicate such, then the government, U.S. government, you know, let's say it's a a significant matter, would then work with that host country to provide evidence and ultimately arrest that person. But if the country doesn't honor, you know, those things, Mm -hmm. then that person can freely move about within that country without worrying about, you know, the long arm of the U.S. law.
0: Alright, so I'm guilty as most guys who watch too many Jason Bourne movies and cinematic pieces that say that you know, Russia and Ukraine are like the two ground zero of cyber attacks and it's just the way it is. You know, the fall of the Soviet Union, people were needed to figure out a way of whatever excuse you want to use. Would you say that Dan that rumor is true, that this is a eighty percent of all cyber attacks happen in Eastern Bloc countries or Are the days of the guy in an Internet cafe in in South Africa over, you know, where it's just this kid trying to send the oil of ministry emails? Like, where is the geographic location, in your opinion, or what have you heard that this is the ground zero of cyber attacks?
1: Yeah, so it's Eastern Europe, you know, Russia, Ukraine, and it moves over India into China, Um, you know, seems to be the hotbed of this. Mm -hmm. But you also mentioned, or you also use the example of some kid in some um, internet cafe. So that person can still be involved in ransom. And what they would do is ransomware as a service. So they gain entry into a company. They then might reach out to a hacking group to use their tools to lock the network up. And then that larger group, you know, would negotiate on this kid's behalf a payment and they would somehow divvy up the proceeds Mm -hmm. on the back end. But yeah, it's, um, it's a Eastern European, Russia, Ukraine heading east, you know, over. And these groups have different skills and capabilities. Honestly, some are better than others, meaning that they're, Tools and the things they've done to encrypt the network are more sophisticated than others. Mm-hmm. And there's no guarantee um, that you buy the decryption tool that you'll get back 100% of your network. There's always a bit of it that just simply fails for whatever reason.
0: Ah, okay.
1: But you know, we test those things before we provide. You know, here are some encrypted files. You know, hacking group, please. Mm-hmm use your tool and send them back to us so we know that the tool works all these sorts of things you don't blindly go make payment but ultimately there might be some fringe damage to the network but these things generally work and some work better than others
0: so dan i don't know if you can answer this question but um you know in my mind i say we have all these cyber attacks coming from outside the united states but then i'm sure that there's people in the united states that are bad actors who are hacking groups that maybe they're using a vpn that goes from the united states to canada to eastern europe and back into the united states and actually it's naperville it's libertyville it's small towns in mokina are just kid like there maybe this is a u.s thing too like any idea how many times u.s citizens get arrested or charged with
1: yeah and i don't have yeah and i don't have a clear view of this. But ultimately, the issue comes in, the The catch in all of this is um, converting the coin into whatever currency. And so if it was a US based person as part of this group, they would have a real problem converting the coin into currency because, you know, right. the dot US of, of say Coinbase and others, sure, where the US government could serve legal process just
0: like that right okay you,
1: could, you know so you know does someone who doesn't maybe understand how this all work could be involved and ultimately get caught mm-hmm. i'm sure but that is how, does,
0: how did 800 grand magically appear in your checking account from yeah, that so, you know, yeah um
1: that i think eventually i mean you could participate but i think eventually unless you're flying you know and muling money back and forth the run, i mean right right you know there are ways to get around things but with, you know, habitual travel to the nine parts of the world you're going to get. And that falls back into my lane, counterterrorism world. Like, why are you going, you know, John Q public to this part of the world where you have no family, no affiliation, nothing. What are you doing? That's going right. to, you know, and again, it'll, you know, it'll pop on some tripwire. And then you put the piece together. And is, is there a criminal case that can be made? So there could be a valid reason, right. but. You know, you run the risk of, you know, exposing your patterns simply by going to places you shouldn't be.
0: Dan, have there been instances where a company got hit with a cyber attack ransomware? They paid it. They got their files back. And six weeks later, it happened again. And you guys are just like shaking your head like didn't you learn your lesson the first time? Or maybe it's happened multiple times because they just have those continual turnover of employees that are receptionist or yeah. you know the guys in the back room that are just not frankly that savvy like
1: yeah and we've had a few instances where um the client has been hit a second time
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and again me, dying. you can't victim shame or victim blame again like you said um and, and we're all busy in the day and you're getting emails and messages and you just click on something mm-hmm. and that creates a toehold and or, or a software update comes out that wasn't patched quickly enough i mean you know it's really hard um to keep the castle walls you know intact when people from all all angles are all coming outside out. yeah
0: so how many times do you have any idea how many times like amazon web services or google cloud microsoft azure like are they are they just, they have, they must have a completely dedicated team just to thwart any kind of loss of their data. And I would see that that is a castle whose walls and, you know, whose hill is everywhere. Like it's almost has to be an impossible task to keep that data secure. Or is it maybe because they're so big, they're able to afford the manpower and the tools to prevent that from happening? Like what's your take there?
1: Yeah. And again, I, I am not technically okay. you know able to maybe answer that, but how I look at it is, you know, these cloud based companies have data, but who do you attribute it to? You know, I mean, you you get you grab something, you know, and you know, how do you extort that? You know. Right. So right. it's really trying to get into someone's network and taking things off the network that triggers, you know, a legal response by the company. Got it. You know, but yeah, I'm sure, you know, Microsoft and, and, the, and the like have armies of people, sure. you know, trying to address what you've said. I'm,
0: Ultimately, I'm they're saying, hey, it's, but it's not our data, it's your data. We're just holding it for you. Like, Yeah, yeah, not and, a problem.
1: Yeah. So who knows there? But um, it's really targeting, you know, standalone networks, finding vulnerabilities on networks and then trying to extort a payment out of the owner of that network.
0: And has there, has there, I guess if you're paying with Bitcoin, there's no way you can retrieve that money, right? That's the fe- That's the feature of Bitcoin. But yeah. are there still cybersecurity attacks that you're using, you're paying with a credit card? Like, does that still happen? Not that, or- I,
1: not that I've seen. All yeah. in, incidents I've been involved in is a Bitcoin mm-hmm. payment. Some of these groups want um, more anonymous coins, and we simply don't honor those requests. Okay. We, we just pay in Bitcoin.
0: Got it. And you had, we had talked during the interview, Dan, that there was this, uh, you still have to respect the legal process and that we just can't go in with the team that we have to pull, ping, request extradition if we have enough data that we have saved up. Have there ever been an instance that you know of where the FBI or OFAC or whoever, the Department of Justice have been able to successfully extradite and arrest and extradite bad players to the United States in take it to court and they were successful in like there's somebody behind bars at the Metropolitan Correctional Center right now.
1: Yeah. And I I believe the answer to that is yes. I just don't have any instances, um, you know, I can recall, but the other piece of the, of this cyber world are the nation state actors penetrating networks for information, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and I don't work in that space, but I know the U S government, the FBI has been, successful in identifying those groups, those nation state, those state-sponsored hackers, mm-hmm. and trying to bring them to justice.
0: So- oh, I didn't uh, even think about that set of the yeah, the coin. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So these are so hacking groups that are sponsored and supported and yeah, have the wink wink of the actual country. And yeah, they may say one thing, but are doing something completely different. Yeah,
1: yeah. and those, those nation state hackers are looking for specific things. So let's just say, you know, you're Coca-Cola and they want your secret recipe, right? Mm-hmm. To mimic or copy what you're doing. They will try to target you and others to gain that information. And I always use the example on the nation state side. You're a company that makes paint. Okay. Mm-hmm. Simple wall paint, but you've been around for a hundred years. And over time, you've perfect, you've perfected your formula to make high quality, highly durable paint. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's taken you a long time to do it. And your paint sells at say a premium to others because it's a, of a better quality. Right. So someone, a nation state could say, we want to get in the paint business and we're going to try to learn your formula that you spent hundred years working on, steal it from you. Our inputs are, are much cheaper. Our labor is much cheaper. We're going to make just as good a paint at half the price. And the consumer unknowingly will say, oh, this is the same quality as the family paint. Why would I pay 50% more when in reality that's been a stolen recipe? Right. And that's, that's why it's it's very important that, you know, the public, you know, holds these countries and responsible because you never know when your paint formula that you've worked on forever could get taken. And then now you're being undermined by someone that didn't have to have all that sweat equity in making a successful paint formula.
0: I had heard a rumor from a family member of mine that was in the cybersecurity space that said he was he was just doing an assessment for a manufacturing company in the northwestern suburbs of uh, Chicago, up you know northern Illinois. And he noticed that every time the company engineer would upload a file for their CNC, the Computer Numerical Control Machine, every, every time they would upload a new file and, and run a part, make a part with the CNC machine, that in the early hours of the morning when the when the lights were off, that same file was being sent over to a nation state, he believed, that was copying and, yeah. and stealing the intellectual property and looking at the actual blueprint of what yeah. this company was making yeah. And they would just spit it up like in 48 hours. You see the same product on eBay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I mean, I don't have any, you know, the story, the story you're telling me is believable. I mean, yeah. it, that could very well happen.
0: Man. Cause I have heard rumors where there are U S manufacturers are making your product and they see an exact duplicate within the week Yeah. on online. Yeah. Uh, so how it has gotta happen somehow. Uh,
1: yeah. And if you think about it, that manufacturer of paint or whatever part you're talking about is focused on, you know, making quality parts, yeah. servicing their customers, finding new customers. They're forward facing to build the business. And the back office stuff, the network security is not the priority. And right. that's completely normal and understandable. Totally. That the business owner isn't focused on have we done software patches? right um but that's why you need you know to outsource it properly or have the right people to protect it because you know your in my example your paid formula could end up somewhere else yeah. and undermine your business and wow. as oh that'll never happen i'm sure someone out there like you said and maybe that rumor's true has has suffered that yeah well
0: dan you know my dad was a machinist and most in in this in the 90s you know before he wound the business down most of these machines were still p- slightly pre and post World War II, Brown and Sharp and Harding machines. So I can absolutely envision a manufacturing company in the Western sub communities here in Illinois where they're using, you know, computer numerical control machines with operating systems that date back to the '90s, early yep. 2000s, maybe when this wasn't even a, that much of a conversation. And who knows what yeah. kind of operating system is on that CNC machine connected to the, our, you know, yeah. our local wireless okay. router
1: or something. And and we've seen manufacturers just like that with using, like, Windows 95 um, on their machines to make their parts. And that is a big challenge if they do. And it happened in in one instance where, you know, a manufacturer using very outdated um, software because it worked. Yeah. And they're just doing their thing and they get um, hacked. And it simply melts down their network. I mean, mm-hmm. um, for whatever, and again, I'm not technical, but you know, they couldn't come back from that, but you're right. And it's a vulnerability, but it, it's, I guess in some ways too, that some of these, some of the stuff's so old that it's, I don't want to say hack proof, that's never, that doesn't exist, but right. you know, yeah. sometimes paper and pencil you know, might right. be the right. way to avoid some of this right. stuff, which um, is insane.
0: Yeah, let me ask another question. Then. And again, you don't have to answer this question, but we were talking about passwords and how a 16-character alpha numeric password is now the the new, you know, one two three A, B, C, right? Yeah. So that's that's the minimum that you have to do. Now, we, I'm not going to ask you personally if you do use this, but have have you heard of any instances where companies that help, uh, I think it's called LastPass or LastPass, where it's a encrypted area or service that you put in all your passwords and usernames, and they're the ones that hold on to the encrypted passwords and usernames, but have they ever, okay, I'm not asking them, Well, how do you feel about that? I'm not asking you if they've been hacked, but I'm asking you, do you feel that that is a legitimate, prudent way of keeping track of all your usernames and passwords rather than say on Evernote or on a thumb drive somewhere?
1: Yeah, again, I, I mean, um you know these password management systems i i assume work mm-hmm. um Same. i don't I, I don't know either you know i can't really answer that i just have um generated um a list of passwords that i keep um and again it's it's probably you know from security 101 back in the in the first day never write your passwords down mm-hmm. but i do but i transpose a couple um, within the written password. And I know which ones have been transposed, you know, in case that sheet gets lost. So that's the way, I, I don't know if that's even, maybe someone who's, who would listen to this would, you know, you know, message me, that's the dumbest thing you could ever do. But that's the way I approach it. I went from password one, two, three, like you said, you know, very simple things to, you know, each one of my online accounts has a unique password. And how I, I track do that it is manually.
0: Right. Okay. On a sheet of paper,
1: not on my computer. Right. You know, cold storage of the passwords. You know, and then I take that one extra step where I transpose. You know, a couple of these um, characters, right. that I only know. Got. And that works for me. But yeah, there. I mean, a lot of people use these password. You know, services, and I'm sure they work.
0: Right. There's always got to be this. You got to. You have to weigh the. Uh, the ease of use. And the yeah. convenience with security, yeah. so there's always yep. going to be, it's always going to be something. Well, yeah. Dan, listen, thank you so much, man. This has been a great conversation. I feel like we yeah. could no, dig I'm, way deeper. I'm
1: glad to, glad to, to participate so and enjoy the time.
0: What? Tell me. So I give everybody an opportunity to shamelessly self-promote. You know, a non-for-profit, a business, um, like anything uh, that is special to you. Do you? Is there anything you want to you want to promote on a personal or professional level, or
1: no, I think, um, I think the message here is what's most important, you know, rotating passwords, don't click on links, patch software vulnerabilities, those sorts of things. And, you know, get behind the thought that there are bad people out there trying to take your family recipe right. and do not take this cybersecurity lightly or think it can't happen to you or who cares, you know, tell that to the paint manufacturer or in your instance, the part, um, you know, builder that they shouldn't worry about this stuff right. because other people ruthlessly will take your stuff, make it to the same as specs, probably maybe even use lesser quality parts or, or materials, market it as the same. And then you're, you know, part of the problem as you make an inferior product when, you know, someone, um, again, filled in the missing pieces, what they thought would be the formula, whatever it is. I mean, this is, you know, all day, every day.
0: Uh, While you're asleep.
1: Yeah. While you're asleep,
0: somebody's trying to steal your business.
1: Yeah. And and again, your business, like you said, Bill, is, you know, client service and and managing, you know, money. Maybe you have some approach, you know, that you are, is unique to your way. And let's say it's in a file on your computer, let's say, Mm -hmm. you know, if someone gets their hands on that, they can hang up a shingle and say we this this is what we do. And now like, wait a second, how do that how do they know how I'm doing things? Right. And so it's not just paint and manufacturing, it's intellectual property, mm-hmm. all those sorts of things. Everything clothes designs, colors, you name it, you know, and you know, um theoretically everything. trying to yeah. leapfrog, you know, generations of effort. To be immediately competitive, and why not just steal our way to the top?
0: Right. Well, it's been done before, and it's, it's currently being done. Interesting. Yeah. All right, Dan, boy, thank you so much for your time. I know we, we went a little bit over, but yep. this is really, really informative, and I really appreciate your expertise and you being able to share this information with us. Uh, thank you again for being on the blockchain advisor, Dan, and I hope to do another episode with you. And please feel free to reach out to me if something really unusual and kind of quirky happens in the world of cyber attacks, because I would love to be able to share that information with, uh, with yep. our listeners.
1: Yep, glad to do so.
0: All right, Dan. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. The information is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy and should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. And answers to questions do not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities, forms of payment, cryptocurrencies, options, or strategies mentioned. It is not intended to be a substitute for specific individuals. Individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine what is suitable for you, consult a professional advisor before implementing any information presented to discuss profit, loss, and risk. Investment advisory services are offered through Seneca Capital Management LLC, a state registered investment advisor. The firm and investment advisor representatives of Seneca Capital Management only conduct business where they are properly registered. Registration with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any state securities authority does not imply a certain level of skill or training.